Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I've rehearsed this speech a thousand times on the chance that we would meet. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm one of those fortunate people who likes my job. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of military compellence and emotionalism. Today, we'll be finishing off April. Running towards you with explosions behind me. I mean, I always do the description because I feel like Bapril is such a visual experience. Oh, yeah. We can't. The sound alone does not do Bapril justice. Yeah. I agree on that. Yeah. So it, we're doing The Rock, which we were just mm -hmm. talking. It, it is probably the finest Bay film we've watched for Bapril. I think it's the finest Bay film, period. Actually. I didn't want to, I was like, I was like, I, I, do I really want to say that? Is there something I'm not thinking of? But no, I'm thinking I've, it's, it's not like there's going to be one that <laughs> sneaks in there. I mean, there are, <laughs> th to be fair, there are non-sci-fi films of Bay that are actually quite good. Like I think Pain and Gain is, is okay. pretty good and Ambulance has oh. its charms, but like, oh, and? Well, I was saying it's the best one we've seen for the Bayperl. Right. That's for Definitely sure. the best one we've seen for Bayperl. Yes. Yeah. And better than Armageddon, which is saying something. So. Yeah. We both really enjoyed Armageddon. Yes, we did. It is available at Paramount Plus. In the next few weeks, we will be talking about Strange New Worlds, and we're doing a two-episode special on Yellow Jackets. Yes. Which I'm, I am super excited about. Uh, As I, I. I saved episode five for Ooh. tonight. So, oh, I, I did the same thing. No actually. Oh, oh, good, 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 yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have so many ideas for what we're going to cover. <laughs> and we, we've actually, we hi we've hired someone to help us out, like organizing the podcast. Everyone's patronage money is going to good use. That's yes. what I want to say. Like, mm -hmm. we have a very small staff. <laughs> the important thing is we are taking the funds from the, the Patreon and we are reinvesting them in the podcast. That is true. We're that not engaging true. in, we don't engage in stock buybacks here at Space the Nation. We believe in improving the product. And we are not paying ourselves first either. <laughs> no, we are definitely not doing that. Nope. nope and nope, if you nope, want nope, to help nope. us out in this project, you could you could become a patron yourself. If you're not already one. If you're not already. You go to patreon.com slash space the nation. You get episodes early. You can participate in our AUAs, which we yes. will do very soon for April. We're going to have to do it next. Yeah, actually, we're going to have to do it the weekend this comes out, Anna. Okay, well then, yes, we're going to do there that. We go. Yep. And yep. also, you get access to our wonderful Discord, where really cool people hang out. I think that's all mm -hmm. I need to say about it. it, it who hang out and, and they, do not they, disperse national secrets. Yes. Space the Nation Discord, keeping national security tight since 2020. Yeah, I mean, we've had it for a while. A, a while. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Maybe 2021. I'm not sure. Dan, what else What else we got here at the top of the show here? Well, you know, talking about reaching us on social media is an increasingly complicated discussion, <laughs> but we will simplify it to we are both on Mastodon. Anna is also on Instagram. I am also on Substack. Deep breath every time you say subject, man. <laughs> Deep I breath. Know. Just. I know. All right. Yeah. I'll, I also have a, a website. It is www.annamariecox.com. <laughs> you can find me Boat there. Oh, <laughs> oh, you knew the reference. That makes me so happy that you knew yes. the reference. We have a kinship here, Anna, yes. Yeah, we are basically <laughs> incubated in the same exact pop culture bath. Million, you know? yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Dan... <clears throat> Enough about the past. Mm -hmm. How are you today? 
I am good today, Anna. You know, it's the the writing of the lecture notes is done for me. And while courses are not done, the the freedom that I don't have, like the, the these feeling of like borderline panic that I'm going to run out of material when I teach, which is something that I occasionally have when I'm developing a new course, is now gone. And since I'm not going to be developing a new course for quite some time, that's a pretty serious psychological lift. I'm, I'm feeling pretty like light and breezy. How are you, Anna? I, I, I could sense the light and breeziness in you, Dan. <laughs> I could sen- sense a lightness of you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, which is fine. It is fine to be good. Mm-hmm. I had a real interesting like existential kind of moment the other day where I was talking about how, you know, like 99.9% of us have faced a lot of challenges in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get kind of down. And one of the things I think is like, I don't know, what it, what is it all for? I mean, literally, like I have like existential, like, what is it all for? You know, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And this woman I know was like, well, maybe this is why you're doing it. Like right now, maybe this is it. And at first I was like, wow, that's depressing. The way I interpreted that at first was like the depressing way, which is like, this is it. Sorry, this is it, you know? And then I realized later, no, what she means. (laughs) I was going to say, I had a different reaction to that, Anna, which might, you know, yeah. It's a glass half, it's a life half full, life half empty thing. Mm -hmm. And it took me a day to realize, no, what she's saying is that my life is pretty great. And like, <laughs> and it is like by objective yeah. standards, my life is pretty great. And this is what I'm living for is this right now, including doing this amazing podcast with you, Dan. Oh, thank you. Just to show you how much of an optimist I am on I actually have a cartoon on my door in my office that, that shows the glass with half water. And what it actually shows is like half water, half air. And the caption is actually the glass is always full. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very University of Chicago joke. I know. I knew, I knew you would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So we're vibing today, Anna. Is we I'm totally saying. are vibing. Dan, why are we talking about The Rock? Well, it's April. Running towards the camera. And there were two ways we could have closed April out. We could have continued to go in chronological order and done another Transformer film. I sensed Anna's aversion to doing that. And Given that I've seen snippets of the later ones, I can't say that I blame her for this. So we're stretching the definition of sci-fi a little bit to go back before Armageddon and examine The Rock to see if we can discern the themes of Bapril that go beyond A, let's just blow shit up, and B, we need a hot girl for this one scene. Also, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say. I'm pretty sure this is Sean Connery's last good watchable film. He did a few films after this one. He did, I think, Entrapment, Finding Forrester, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which maybe we'll do later for like, you know, Schlock or Awe or something. And I know he regretted not doing Lord of the Rings, but this is really the last real Connery film where it's like the sort of full Sean Connery charisma and action all in one thing. So uh, it's enjoyable. It is enjoyable. Uh, we are aware that it's not exactly science fiction-y. Yeah. It was recommended on the Discord with the logic that the gas part of this movie is sort of science fiction-y. Like, that's not how... That's not how VX gas that's works. That's not how things work. Or VX works, yeah. That, sure. So there is there is some uh, creative use... Uh, or taking taking some <laughs> some creative license. This work of fiction has fiction in it, Anna. Yeah, that, I'm shocked. Which means you we know. actually could do... Any film we chose, I suppose. 
<laughs> by that criteria. But I think the point is we just wanted to close on what we thought was an enjoyable Michael Bay film as opposed to making this a bit more of a, a drudgery assignment for yeah. us. And speaking of enjoying, yes. should people watch the movie before they listen to the podcast? Will listening to this podcast somehow affect their enjoyment of the film? Will it ruin it? See, I think we've learned throughout the month of April, Anna, that there are really not a lot of spoilers for a Michael Bay film, except for whatever Michael Bay does or the screenwriters. I mean, I, I there's not. I mean, there are a few. There's like a one or two plot twists, but they're not major. I don't think. And and I think it's a good film. I would recommend that people watch it, but I don't think you have to watch it prior to, particularly if you've seen it before. I don't think you have to watch it prior to this conversation. What yeah, I mean, I, I'd just say if you're on the fence about watching it again or watching it, mm-hmm. go ahead, watch yeah. it. it. It'll be yeah. more enjoyable, I think, yes. if you don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. But it is not something I, – I can't think of a single Michael Bay film where you need to – like, yes. <laughs> it'll be ruined by some outside force. Like right. Michael I mean, Bay movies are ruined or not ruined. <laughs> Just on their own. <laughs> yes, by Michael Bay. That's the, it, it, Michael Bay is the only one who can choose. And I think the other thing is that even when we're raving about a film, you know, the thing about Michael Bay is it, it, he is. It's a visual medium yeah. in his case, and like it, that's not a that's a compliment. You, yeah. No matter how we describe it, it, you have to actually see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anna, what is your previous experience with this film? I have a very vague memory of seeing it in the theater. In San Francisco, when I was working oh. there in the first dot com boom, and was we kind were of a- in the Bay Area at the same time. Anna, oh. I was getting my, I was just wrapping up my PhD at that point from Stanford. Huh. So and you know, I went, did, yeah. I went to Berkeley for a year, but you were at Stanford, right? I was at Stanford, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I I did a year of going towards a doctorate at at right. Berkeley. It didn't, yeah. 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 Uh, the world is maybe better or worse. I don't know if I'd stayed. Anna, Sometimes I, I mean, think about it. I, I mean this in a complimentary way. You, uh, for, many people who exit PhDs are, are can be very embittered people. That is something you have never struck me as being embittered about. And I think that is an emotionally healthy thing. Wow. Strike one for Anna emotionally healthy on something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm going to tell my therapist you said that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And he's married to a therapist. I'll tell my my therapist. Yeah, exactly. I'll be like, so yeah. he has some some kind of. I have like some ben- penumbra of therapy, like ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I do remember, like I said, I think I saw it in the Bay Area, and I mm-hmm. think it's on the big screen. And I remember it being kind of the actually the beginning of really liking big and dumb movies. <laughs> like, of course, I love Star Wars yeah. and I love action movies as a kid. Right, right. But as an adult being like, you know what? This is an art form. This is its own right. thing. It, accepting it on its own level, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. What about you? I think, I don't think, so Erica does not quite appreciate the big and dumb as much as as you do or I do. In fact, actually, we, we tell along, one of, one of the stories of our courtship is that, you know, when we were first dating, and this is about a year before, you know, we were in the honeymoon phase, we'd dating for like about six weeks, we decided to go away for a weekend, the two of us. And at the end of the weekend, we were walking along the boardwalk and we saw a film and I was like, hey, let's go watch this. And the movie was Crimson Tide on it. Oh, and, great which is movie great in fi- my opinion, a, yes. Yes, great film. Eric did not share in the enjoyment of that film. And I think 
ever since then, that was like that was like the moment where she realized, oh, this man has flaws. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, never would have known. Otherwise, never would have figured that out. I could have yeah. like you know the, the illusion was gone. Anyway, the point is, I think this might have actually been not just a rental, but like a video rental, like a VHS rental for me. That's how long ago this movie that you was. watched by yourself. <laughs> No, I think I have to have watched it with her or something. Or maybe I watched it with friends. I, I honestly don't remember, but yes, yes. All right. Well, let's get to the story behind the story, Anna. So I think the thing that honestly astonishes me is the fact that you have, like, if you had told me, even now, like the idea of, yeah, you're going to throw in Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery and Michael Bay and put it in a blender, I would not have really thought of those three people as working terribly well, and and yet it does. So that's pretty, pretty impressive. Tell me about the story behind the story on well i think the first interesting thing is that bay didn't love this idea right away hmm. okay that he turned it down a few times hmm. thinking the story quote just wasn't serious enough for me the real huh. driving force for this movie apparently was jerry bruckheimer like uh-huh. he really wanted to get this made he's the one who kind of got people on board for it including michael bay who did eventually you know, when Michael Bay does something, and we will talk about this in the lessons from from April, I believe mm-hmm. he is a hundred percent kind of guy. Yeah, like yeah. Once he decides to make a movie, he's gonna fucking make that movie. <laughs> you know. Yes. Now, there's a little bit of um, let's say Mexican writing binge vibes. Oh, so good. good around good. around this movie. Ed Harris was pitched mm-hmm. on the role at Bruckheimer's house and the producer quote, didn't stop talking for 45 minutes as he broke down everything about the character and why he should take the role. I don't have any further quotes than that, but talking for 45 minutes to Ed Harris about his role. That's not a Mexican writing binge so much as a Mexican pitch. I think would that be a better <laughs> way of putting it? Well, I meant like it's in the, the of in the Venn diagram, it's in the same geographic area that creates a Mexican, Mexican writing binge. binge. Yes, fair enough. I think so. Uh, yeah. Let's say Bruckheimer had been visiting Mexico. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that that sounds about right. Yeah, this movie does start a lot of both the best and the worst um, that Michael Bay is capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best being you named the great actors that he has, and we'll talk about more of them. Oh, there yeah. are more of them than I can name off the top of my head. Like yes. Just yes. chock full, murderer's row of great character mm-hmm. actors. This also had a script written, not credited by oh. at least three scriptwriters who we would be like, oh, yeah, you know, but why were they involved in this movie? Who knows? Aaron Sorkin. Okay. Yeah, that actually tracks. Quentin Tarantino. Huh. Also okay. tracks. Yeah. And our friend, and apparently, Either Bay's friend or he has some kind of information about him locked <laughs> yes. in a security, like locked in a, um, sorry. What in a safe it? deposit box. Right. Or he has some kind of information about him locked in a safe deposit box. Robert Town. Wow. Oscar winner. <laughs> wow. The man who wrote okay. Chinatown, Robert Town. And this, of course, being apparently the first Bay movie that he did some punch up on. So I almost want a movie made of whatever night Robert Town and Michael Bay spent together that must have led to the leverage that got him to chip into the rock and Armageddon. Yeah. Also, in this movie, we see Bay is fascinated by the military, kind of fetishizes it even, and also mm-hmm. really fetishizes working with them. 
like yes. all the military stuff that's in here. Also, he filmed on location, almost all I, of the stuff that's on location. Like if it looks like it was filmed in San Francisco, it was filmed in San Francisco. It was filmed at the Fairmount. It was filmed on Alcatraz. At Alcatraz, exactly. It was filmed on The Rock, which I was wondering about that. I am kind of curious, though, like I, we've talked a lot about like various April various bay tropes one of which is massive product placement correct me if i'm wrong i didn't see a ton of product placement in this one you are correct okay <laughs> i good about that yeah it is maybe the only bay film without a ton of product placement and i have no way of uh identifying how that would be because he can figure out ways to to put it in all kinds of scenes. Because at first I was thinking, okay, they were filming on Alcatraz. So maybe that somehow limited like the amount of right, stuff. Right, that would have been hard. But like they were in San Francisco for a good long while. And like there was one water company that I saw where like at yeah. one point, like there's a water truck that blows up during the chase scene. But beyond that, I was legit surprised. I was expecting a little more corporate. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I That is a question I would ask Michael Bay if he ever was in a place that I could ask him questions, which I, I doubt <laughs> will ever happen. My other question for him I think it's about finding actors because he really mm. does have an eye. Yeah. I'll only add one more thing about the literal making of, mm-hmm. which is, as we've discussed, Bay is a tech guy. He mm-hmm. is very much uh, into the craft of film, like the hands-on craft of film. Right. And this is another movie that cinematographers talk about <laughs> that that it has uh, lessons for cinematographers who want to do good work. They shot in incredibly low light areas and Mm -hmm. they improvised a bunch of ways to film because they were filming on Alcatraz and they couldn't do anything to any of the, you know, the structure and they couldn't. Right. Cause it's a national park. It's like literally like, I mean, they were, they were uh, limited in terms of what they could do. So there's no mounting of things. There's Mm -hmm. no tearing things down, no building of things. So they had to kind of work around the rock uh, and wind up getting pretty creative. Uh, I also learned that Bay has a secret to his car chases. Oh, which, which is? is that he doesn't use one of those green screen things that most mm-hmm. that they use. With, it's a, the car or, or a car that's being towed, you know, right. like that. Yeah. He will film uh, actors in the motionless car and just shake the cameras. Yeah, you do. You did. Actually, one of the things I noticed, like I kind of thought when I was watching this at various times, like, oh, so did Tony Gilroy borrow like shaky cam from him for the the Bourne movies? Because that's actually what it reminded me of very briefly. Yeah. And and I think Paul Greengrass, I think, with both of them. And there are some stories about the the Bayhem side, which is that. Oh, of course. One of the functions of him caring so much about the physical making of the film is that he can be kind of an asshole. And. (laughs) But people put up with it and mm-hmm. it keeps making movies. Although maybe there is an end to that because his, his, the quality has fallen off a bit over the years. Yeah. Like it, again, there's a reason we went back to this movie as yeah. opposed to continuing yeah. either the Transformer films or we probably could have done Six Underground also as a potential sci-fi thing because that was pretty ludicrous plot. And yet it's just an unpleasant film, unfortunately. Yeah. This is much more pleasant. Although ambulance is supposed to be good, right? So ambulance was good. I, it I has watched good it, actors yeah. in it, so maybe, yeah. maybe you know, I, I, maybe this is still a thing that works for him. And I bet it has good cinematographers and whatnot. Like, I, I think his name carries weight in that community. 
it's also legit. Like, by the way, Ambulance and I think Pain and Gain, too, also have legitimately funny moments. Like, it's mm-hmm. not and it, it's not because the actors are funny. It's because the moments are funny. And so right. I think weirdly, Michael Bay should be making smaller films like that, you know, <laughs> which is not something I would have thought. But, you know, yeah, I think a little art house, you know, yeah, exactly. like intimate yeah. family dramas, perhaps. Right. There we go. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's get to Chekhov's What's It? This is the thing that often appears in the first act of a film that winds up being somewhat relevant in the third act of the film. So, Anna, I'm going to go actually with Chekhov's Kerosene. Interesting. Because you it do does see go like, off. It does go. He does use it. So, like, yes, as, as Mason is, you know, uh, going with the seals to infiltrate Alcatraz, he's given, for some reason, kerosene and some matches and i'm honestly not sure why he was given those things like that seems sort of weird for it but he does use them later on john c Riley. yeah i'm gonna go with chekhov's hesitation to kill <laughs> okay how about that because okay. in the first part of the movie the way they steal the vx gas they were they do mm-hmm. not kill any of their fellow soldiers they use non-lethal force that's non-lethal correct. lethal force and uh, that'll come Hummel up again is yep. clearly he, I, I also do think there's genuinely interesting character beats in oh, yeah. this movie too i mean it's yeah. the actors part of them but like hummel is an interesting character you yes. know and and ed yeah. harris plays him in a way that you don't have hard and fast answers about right. what he wants and, and why he's doing it. And so anyway, so uh, yeah, so he- hesitation to kill. Okay, yes. Which also comes up in, I guess, Nick Cage overcoming that. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not played that much in the film, but it, it is kind of important, actually. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dan, let's go, let's go. Plot, plot, plot. <laughs> All right, let's get to the plot. Act Running one. towards the plot. <laughs> Act one, worst tour ever. Marine general and living legend Francis X. Hummel, along with his men, seize poison VX gas from a U.S. military depot. They take the chemical weapons to Alcatraz and also seize 78 tourists as hostages. Hummel informs Washington that they have to give him $100 million from a Pentagon slush fund to compensate the families of force reconnaissance Marines who have lost their lives in covert ops over the last few decades. They have 70 hours to pay or he launches the VX rockets at San Francisco. The Pentagon decides to use a SEAL incursion team to infiltrate the rock to obviously try to get back the missiles. They ask the FBI for their best chemical weapons man because there's no way anyone in the Pentagon would know anything about the weapons that they own. Am I right, Anna? Mm. I mean, this. so we've talked before about Ben Affleck's commentary track. I have to admit, I kind of want there to be like a Nicolas Cage DVD commentary track. There is, There is. There is. Is it does it consist of him going? So I asked Michael Bay, "What what's going on here?" There is a Criterion Collection version of this movie. Okay, I wonder how many other directors have two films in the Criterion Collection, and hmm. how many of them are like Michael Bay. <laughs> yes, I think the answer is none, probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and it has Nick Cage, Ed Harris, and Michael Bay, and I believe Jerry Bruckheimer as well. And they were not taped together, so it's all disparate. And I could not find the Nick Cage one. I couldn't find any of it. It's just not like there's there there are YouTube channels that rip comment from the Criterion, yeah, yeah. like from the Criterion. But this one was not ripped. Uh, I do know that Mm -hmm. it is actually Mr. Bay that has the moment of like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. He says in the commentary, "There's a major logic flaw in this movie." Okay. Uh, why are Good the boilers know. working on the rock when this island hasn't been used for years? 
<laughs> he answers his own question saying, screw it. It's entertaining, don't you think? <laughs> that was kind of how I felt like I, this. Was, I have to say. This so that's the not first like, I mean, I, that's that is yeah. of all the things for him to catch. That's the one. Because I think this is a more serious but one. To it be does honest. show like that's just how he thinks. Whatever. Yeah. But I'm just going to point out, like, I, again, it's such a good movie that I go along with it. But this time watching, I was like, wait a minute. They don't need the FBI's chemical weapons guy. Literally, they're guarding the chemical weapons. These are military tools. They should have their own chemical weapons guy who probably has a little more combat seasoning. That's all I'm okay. pointing out. Yeah? A half-hearted defense. Okay, go ahead. What happens is they ask... I'm trying to remember the name of the character actor that pay, plays the director, Womack. One of uh, John Spencer. John Spencer. Yeah. Who's your best uh, chemical weapons guy? A weapons man. Right. And he says, this guy. He's in, and he's in the Right, but FBI. why do they it ask could, him in the it, first place? Well, oh, well, maybe they just like, in all of government, that's my half-hearted defense. Oh. In all of government, of, in, among all the people that we could pull into this. Womack's not going to know that. I'm sorry. Like I did. I, I, I just. I mean, I said half-hearted, half-hearted okay, defense. Fair enough. Like fair I'm enough. just saying. Like, and also they. I mean, it goes so fast. Like you just, I know. No, like I, I, I. This was actually the first time I seriously thought about this point. So like it, again, it's a credit to Michael Bay that. And like, there is. Why would you not just train astronauts? Astronauts to yeah, drill problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of course. Anywho, this means that they need Stanley Goodspeed who's reeling a bit from the fact that his girlfriend, Carla, is pregnant, Catholic, and very much into getting married. To infiltrate The Rock, FBI Director Womack reluctantly agrees to release John Mason, a British commando who escaped Alcatraz back in the 1960s. Mason agrees in return for a pardon, which Womack rips up. The FBI agrees to let Mason clean up at the Fairmont Hotel. He quickly escapes, resulting in a very fun car chase with good speed in pursuit through the streets of San Francisco as Mason briefly reunites with his estranged daughter, Jade. Anna, I do think, again, like one of the things that happens in Bay films are exposition dumps. Um, I mean, that happens in a lot of films, but like they happen a lot in Bay films, often because the plot is, is overcomplicated. But I do think that first Pentagon meeting might perfectly encapsulate Michael Bay's worldview because it turns out, A, the government can be sometimes corrupt, B, there are honorable men within government, and C, there are people that we should all bully because they're young and they don't know shit. I think that there's a world in which Michael Bay went into conservative politics. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. his politics kind of match up the certain kind of culture warrior stances that are taken by today's Republicans, right. you know? Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's, it's also holding in your head at the same time, both American might is awesome mm -hmm. and never trust the government. <laughs> right. Right. And military. Yeah. They die for, they fight and die for us. And they do sick things, you know, like things we don't know about and like can't yeah. be trusted. So he's, he's like, he's just kind of an er American on some level. Like, like, it's, it is interesting though, because I will say he does like, it, it's interesting that he has that worldview and it does, you know, this is sort of nascent in this film because Goodspeed is actually kind of an intellectual. Mason is mm -hmm. an intellectual. They have intellectual conversations and it's portrayed in a favorable way. So it's not completely there, but like it's definitely in that Pentagon meeting. Is all you know what? I, I, and maybe eh, revise and extend a bit. I do think that's Michael Bay's worldview, but I also think there is a reason why he's not in politics and he's in Hollywood. And I, I think that he does fancy himself probably above quote unquote politics. 
And you know what? I think we're all better for that, frankly. Oh, yeah. No, I don't like the world in which Michael Bay <laughs> makes policy. <laughs> no, Michael. <laughs> well, well, even more terrifying, <laughs> to be honest, is Michael Bay as a 21st century Lenny Reifenstahl, because he could be really good at that. And that yeah. would be terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he would yeah. make, well, he, in, on some level, he, he does make propaganda films and they're just, it's just the propaganda films. Are, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, let's get to act two the massacre of the character actors. Uh, the SEAL team launches with Mason and Goodspeed on board. They enter through the cistern, but are detected attempting to enter the shower room while Goodspeed and Mason are still in the tunnels. That leads to a standoff between the SEAL team leader Anderson and General Hummel, whose men have the high ground. After a lot of yelling, the Marines open fire, killing all of the SEALs. Mason decides to hightail it out of there with Goodspeed in pursuit, explaining about the VX gas, which Mason didn't know up until that point. The Marines figure out that they are still intruders and attempt to bomb them out. Mason eventually agrees to help Goodspeed to destroy the rockets carrying the VX because, among other things, he's worried about his daughter. We also learn Mason's backstory from Womack. He was a British SAS operative sent to steal J. Edgar Hoover's best secrets, like the alien landing at Roswell, and who was responsible for the Kennedy assassination a year before the Kennedy assassination actually happened? Well, they you say, know what? Of course. Yes. Well, I, I, no, that was the thing. Like at first, I thought, wait, he was captured in '62. The assassination is '63. They're not going to. That doesn't. Oh, they were planning it. So, mm. like, yeah, he, exactly. The British denied his existence, and so he was kept in a communicado. I want to talk about that scene in the shower um, with Ed Harris and Michael Bain yelling at each other because it was fucking fantastic. Mm. And it's a reminder that this film is like the character actors hall of fame. There are so many great actors in small parts in this film. I loved all of them. I think my personal favorites were first William Forsyth as the FBI, like, you know, field director for San Francisco. He normally plays a bad guy, in films, but he's the good guy. He's a good guy in this one. He's actually like the most, the one guy who like actually checks in on good speed because he's worried about him. And then Tony Todd as um, I believe captain Darrow. Tony Todd is like a great villainous actor in a lot of films. He has one he, of the best lines in the movie. Yes. Which was as soon as you become a, what is it? As soon as you take money, you're no longer yes, a Marine. You're you become a mercenary, a mercenary and mercenaries get paid. Mercenaries yes. get paid. That is, that's yep. the line, man. Yeah. So I am a big fan of David Morse, who oh, yes. is fantastic, uh, has yeah. maybe five lines, right? but is an important presence. No, he's uh, a full he's a full blown character. Again, that the, the yeah, thing I mean, about and this, his the yeah. and his presence as a character really Matters. grounds the film. I mean, he's right. the con because he's the conscience. He's the moral he, conscience of the Marines. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, he's the one who sort of he's the good angel on Hummel's shoulder. Right, yeah. and I also really love Michael Bain. Mm -hmm. I think uh, he's, of course, in uh, Aliens, and yes. loved him there too. There's, I, I don't know how you get that many character actors. What movies didn't get made that year? <laughs> because, <laughs> because there were they were all no character actors no, like, available. <laughs> like, and it's true. Like literally, all of them, like like Xander Berkeley is in this film for like a hot minute at the very yeah. beginning. He's like the FBI chemical uh, head of the FBI chemical lab or something. Yeah, it's really, just a shit ton of fantastic actors. Steve Harris is in this film. He really, it, it's a I, you know, he was a younger actor at this point. I think he only has one line, which is like, "I'm going to take pleasure in gutting you, boy." And yeah. it's such a good line that Nicolas Cage repeats it three times. You know, after that, <laughs> I think it was a compliment to Steve Harris. Yeah. I also want to say the scene where they all get massacred, they ma the massacre yeah. of the character actors. I also 
appreciated that scene. This yeah. movie, I think one of the reasons why it works and it kind of transcends the limits that Michael Bay sets on himself in terms of his, I think he's not interested in art, right? Like he's not interested in big, he's not actually interested in big moral questions. We talked about this with the island. I would say he's not interested in themes is the way. Yeah. I'm not interested in themes, yeah. but there's some yeah. come out, right? Exactly. And, and yeah. one of them is that it is it's human, wasting human life is stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Killing, Cause that scene in the shower room is dumb. Like it's portrayed as this is, a avoidable tragedy that right. happened because people were being uh, uh, people were being stupid. Like I yeah. can't. I'm trying to think of the words. Like they were acting out of momentary, uh, you know, impulse and right. create a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I think there's another scene too where it's kind of it's it, the, there's a killing done out of impulse. Now it's also true that Sean Connery, who's might supposed to be also a voice of conscience one of his mm-hmm. big lines is you can't hesitate to kill <laughs> but yeah that shower scene really i think hits an emotional chord oh yeah it, absolutely it, and part of it is anderson so being michael Bean as anderson pleading with hummel's men to say like i mean he knows they're yeah. in a let me this way this movie much more than revenge of the sith makes it clear what the advantage of having the high ground is like like <laughs> I mean, you know that those seals are going to get absolutely murdered um, yeah. But Anderson just pleading with the men saying, look, I agree with you on the sentiment, but you can't do this. You're, you're, you know, you're violating orders. It's, it's just the wrong thing to do. And so it it was a surprisingly emotionally effective scene, even though it winds up winding up in a slaughter. So yeah. uh, again, well, and that's a credit to all the actors in, in that sequence. And it's incredibly yeah. well done. All right, let's get to act three rocket men. Mason and Goodspeed get to the morgue and kill the Marines there. Goodspeed takes the guidance chips from the 12 rockets located there, and they flee just in time for a shootout to take place in the bowels of Alcatraz. Hummel threatens to kill a hostage unless Mason and Goodspeed turn themselves in and return the chips. Mason destroys the chips, tells Goodspeed to disarm the rest of the rockets, and turns himself in in order to sort of alleviate the pressure. He and Hummel get into a pretty serious quote fight at that point. Goodspeed gets the guidance chip from one of the remaining three rockets, but is also captured. Mason frees himself and Goodspeed. The president decides to initiate their backup plan, which is bombing the island with thermite plasma hot enough to incinerate the VX gas. As Hummel's deadline passes, he launches a rocket at Oakland Stadium at the urging of Captains Fry and Darrow. At the last second, however, Hummel alters the trajectory and sends the missile out to sea. Anna, I think this film in some ways is like the opposite of the island, which I thought had a pretty entertaining first half, but the second half is meh at best. This one, the first half is perfectly fine, but the film really gets going once they finally get into Alcatraz, and the second half is fantastic. And indeed, oh, go ahead. Oh, I I agree. And I was just thinking about how there are still plot holes, and there's still questions about why things are set up the way they are. I I, I mean, there's some thoughtfulness to the scene setting, like giving... Cage and and Sean Connery uh, loved ones in the Bay Area so that the stakes are higher. I think that's smart. That was smart. Yeah. But there's sort of like a why all this happening now and in this order issue. Right. Exactly. No, like, so the most obvious plot hole to me is Hummel launches the rocket um, because his his deadline is passed. And I'm like, shouldn't they have bombed the rock by that point if with the thermite plasma? Like, that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, and it's 
it's a, it's a case sort of like the island where Bay has kind of some half-assed idea about questions he wants to ask. Like, again, it's not exactly philosophy. It's just like, wouldn't it be cool if someone was in this situation, right? And yeah. so he just creates that situation and doesn't really give a lot of thought to like whether or not it makes sense. So. Yeah. All right. Let's close out the plot with Act 4. This is what happens when you disrespect Elton John. Hummel knows his bluff has been called and orders his team to take a few hostages and retreat on the choppers with the VX gas. Fry and Darrow confront Hummel and Major Baxter about not getting paid, with Mason and Goodspeed espying the whole situation. A Reservoir dog style shootout occurs. I wonder if that's the scene that Quentin Tarantino wrote, actually. Because uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming and maybe Sorkin- the shower scene, too. Yeah, yeah. Sorkin, I'm assuming, wrote the interrogation scene. That, that would be my prediction yeah. of like all those yeah. scenes. Uh, with Baxter killed and Hummel mortally wounded. Oh, man, Mason and Good quotes. Spe- that's totally Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. High-minded quotes, yeah. Yep, that's totally Sorkin. No, and also in the prison, when, or in like the original interrogation scene when like uh, Mason is quoting Solzhenitsyn or like Walter Raleigh, that's also Sorkin. Any of the that big, any of like the big quotes, like that's, yes. that's definitely yep. like that's Sorkin, Sorkin being like, yep. where's my Roger Cesaris? Like, where's... <laughs> Mason and Goodspeed grab the general and he tells them the last rocket is in the lower lighthouse before dying. Goodspeed manages to get to the guidance chip after shooting the rocket through Darrow. Pursued by Fry, Goodspeed makes him swallow a VX nodule, killing him. Goodspeed takes the atropine he's been given in case he gets exposed to the VX, survives, and lights the green flares. They call off the airstrike, but not before one jet accidentally drops a bomb. None of the hostages are injured, but the blast throws Goodspeed into the bay, and Mason rescues him yet again. That might have been like the third or fourth time he saved Goodspeed's life. I'm not sure at this point. Goodspeed tells his superiors that Mason died during the blast and tells Mason to take off. Grateful, Mason tells Goodspeed where to find the microfilm. Goodspeed, Carla, and the bulldog, Anna. I th- assumed you'd like the bulldog. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Right off into the sunset, secure in the knowledge of who really killed Kennedy again, I'm not entirely sure what that microfilm would have shown since he stole it a year before Kennedy was assassinated. But, Anna, where do you think Mason wound up? I like to think, you know, on an island without an extradition treaty somewhere, Mm -hmm. like living out his life. His daughter lives, you know, nearby. Like, I I don't know. I think think he, he, and he would be like a salvage consultant or something. Oh, that's good. Put his, or like, yeah, his, it's almost his like a Shawshank re- to use, you know, mm-hmm. in helping people find shit. Sort of a Travis McGee situation. If anybody's read the Travis McGee novels, uh, interesting. What do you think? Okay. Um, I actually think it would almost end a little like Shawshank, where you know, he's got a boat. He you know occasionally gives tour guides. Maybe he even sends a note at some point to Goodspeed telling him to join him. I don't know. I do like that part of the ending. Mm-hmm. The whole fucking microfilm thing is just yeah. like, why? <laughs> again, this is classic. Like, it's just, it is classic it, Bay. It's, it's it classic is. Bay. And it's weird because again, Bay is not listed as a screenwriter for any of these films, but clearly he must've had some input because again, this is one of these things where it's like an overcooked plot point that you didn't need. You could just I mean, completely get rid of it. Just yeah. completely. I mean, why was Sean Connery in prison? I don't know. Our government holds a lot of people <laughs> without trial. You know, like, yeah. Although I did like I, that part of the backstory, I didn't mind. But like, again, it was just 
like they went into such detail with it that it was it was weird. They and- could have come up with something because because one of yeah. the things about the backstory that is uh, obviously taken some liberties, but is true, which is that there are soldiers that do things that we never find out about. Right? Sure, absolutely. Um, I I was thinking. The military probably does give survivors benefits, even though that, like, even if the mission is top secret, like, of course they give survivors benefits. You can't. Yes. You just say they. You just lie about you just how say they, they died. died. Yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say that. So part of the again, one of the problems with the whole film is like the original premise was like, really, you're gonna threaten to kill a million people for oh. this? Well, okay, yes and no, because yeah, I do okay. like the idea of him kind of being fed up with the American government lying, sure. right, okay. and like all the secret wars. Yeah. But they yeah. weren't secret wars, to be fair. Like they were secret, op- they were secret operations Ops. in known wars. Yes, just well, to be China. clear, yeah. right? But that was during the Vietnam War. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I, I do like the again. I like the idea of a general getting fed up with the with the misuse of the American military, right? Yeah. For like sure. extra legal operations. Mm-hmm. Um, what would have been interesting? Well, it would have been a little too prescient, but hey you know, predicted the Kennedy assassination would be uh, <laughs> torture of prisoners and uh. holding of other people. It would be interesting if it actually he was mad about the violation of human rights, the same kind of violation of human rights that Sean Connery was suffering. Holding people yeah. without trial. Right. Like that forcing, actually would have been interesting. Yeah. Like forcing soldiers who swear an oath to uphold the constitution to violate that constitution. Except that right. you're right. Except the problem with that is that someone who is legitimately appalled by that in no way or shape or form would then steal chemical poison oh, gas he, and threaten. He the admits population. at the end there was never he was never really going to do it. Well, we're going to get to that in a second. But like you then don't do this plan is my answer to that. Well, but. that's stupid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, what you do is you go to the New York Times. There like, we go. That's mm. what you do. <laughs> like, yes. Or you know what? You, you could post to a Discord channel. I mean, really, potato, potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. um, WikiLeaks. That would there also we go. Yeah, uh, yeah. Be, a, be, a, be a good strategy. Yeah, it, it is. The the weird thing is, well, it's a Michael Bay movie. Like, the overly complicated. Like, why would someone? It is cool. Like, again, somewhere in Mexico, right. you can understand screenwriters having this <laughs> conversation. There's a magical place in Mexico where this all is place like, this is such a genius plot. I can't believe no one's thought of it before. Yeah. yeah. I love that idea. <laughs> oh, oh, we are, t- I'm bouncing off the walls with these ideas, Anna. My God. Let's go get some more ideas. Hey, put those, put those ideas on the mirror. Do you have any more ideas so left? I'm just going to, oh. I'm just going to, I'm just going to lick up some of the, the remaining ideas here. I've got some sick <laughs> concepts, man. I've got some sick concepts. You, no one else has these concepts, man. These will take you on a trip. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, okay. I can imagine like getting really excited about the idea of a of a former military guy turning the military's own tactics against them, right? Yeah. Like that's sure. like, oh, whoa, that's cool. No, yeah. that's legitimately. Yeah, have that's some more ideas. Idea. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really doesn't really work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait. Speaking of things not working. Yes. Uh-huh. I have a question for you. Oh, please go ahead, Anna. Is there IR in the rock? Anna, I'm just a political scientist. Most of the time I work in a small office and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Prius, a black one. But what I'm dealing with here 
is a director who really loves explosions. So why don't you cut me some friggin' slack, man? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's IR in it, but I don't want to kill anyone analyzing it. I would say that that Generals Hummel and uh, Major Baxter uh, voice most of the IR in the film. They're, they're pretty explicit about it. Hummel's dilemma is that he's bluffing, and he knows he's bluffing. But he doesn't want the Pentagon to know that. So the question is, how can you convince the Pentagon that you are actually seriously intentionally going to launch chemical weapons that will kill a lot of people you know one way you you don't do that Anna, is by when you're getting the chemical weapons using non-lethal force so like that's a problem like the very first raid that he does by not killing anyone it indicates that maybe he's not all that serious about it. now on the other hand by not killing anyone presumably it also reduces the likelihood that there'll be retaliation but still this gets tricky that's problem one. And this is where actually we're like, there's an even a debate about this after the shower scene where like uh, Tony Todd says, well, now maybe they'll pay us. And McGinley says, well, maybe they won't because we just killed them. Uh, but the point is, is that actually you had to demonstrate resolve. And indeed he actually says this. He says, you know, we've achieved our position through, you know, poise, audacity and whatever. And now to this, we must add resolve. And the problem is Hummel can't add the resolve because he's never going to kill people. And so as a result, this was always going to fail. So when I heard that he was like the finest battalion commander in Vietnam, I totally believed that. <laughs> I suspect he was a bad general though, because you know you can be good at tactics and bad at strategy. And the problem that Hummel has is that he's really good at tactics and really bad at strategy. I'm just gonna I just think there. that um, like what a diss, the, he's the, like, I wasn't surprised that he was a commander in Vietnam. Like, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's young. That, that, that wasn't a diss. It was just like, I, I know, I, but like, I was really like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I wasn't surprised he served in Vietnam. <laughs> the, other, the one we lost. Right. <laughs> I was not met as a knock on, on, uh, on Hummel in that way. I will say there is a l other, like, again, it's, it's actually by Bay standards, pretty subtle in terms of IR, which is Baxter's point that once they decide to take this mission, the chain of command is going to break down because norms are being violated. They are no longer Marines. Hummel thinks they're still Marines, but you know, they're killing seals. They're taking hostages. He's correct that the men are no longer Marines. And once you're willing to disobey orders um, and fire on fellow soldiers, you're kind of going to keep doing that until you get paid. And again, this leads to Tony Todd's best line in the film about expecting to get paid. And like the, the fact that the two captains keep badgering Hummel to launch the missiles. So seeing the unit cohesion break down, perfectly predictable and also actually well executed by Michael Bay. If this were a different kind of podcast, like just seriously, like film studies, I think yeah. this is an interesting movie to break apart about how you make an action movie that works, mm -hmm. that feels like it has more to say than it does. Well, that also, I, I think we, I mean, we've talked about this before where. Cause, it, cause right. Cause like, there's yeah. like, there's like gestures towards like, Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. But then and also <laughs> the, th the thing about this film is again, it's the, the reason why the hall of fame of character actors all being in this film matters is each of them has maybe tops, like two pages of dialogue scattered throughout the film. And yet what they do with it, and is you, you're absolutely right about David Morse. Like David Morse, as the conscience, like there's just a, a moment where um, Hummel and Mason are talking to each other, and like Mason makes a comment about how this is really stupid, and there's just a quick shot of David Morse looking 
in like at one of his fellow soldiers and you can tell like oh wow that like actually like hit home with him and like it's again it's like maybe three seconds of film but by doing that it moves the plot along it sets up things that happen later it's it's incredibly effective filmmaking yeah so anna i i I do have a question for you as well oh dan yes what is it? it is there a critique of capitalism in this film Dan. Yes. Workers always whine about their best. <laughs> Capitalists go home and fuck the prom queen. <laughs> but you know what? Yes. Labor is the prom queen, dad. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. By the way, I, 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 want you, I want to hear the rest of this, but I'm just going to point out, this is an example of like so many writers like getting on this. Yeah, because there's no <laughs> British soldier is going to say winners go home and fuck the prom queen. There are no prom queens in the UK. That made no sense. Like there are no prom British queens, guy. and he was she's been in jail. Like jail how for, would he yeah. know, even know anything about American culture? Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, unless Jagger Hoover was dressed as a prom queen. Oh, that the, that ooh, there we go. Films. Um, Sorry, go so, ahead, please. You know, there really is not a critique of <laughs> capitalism within rockets distance. Of, of any Michael Bay film. But I had this idea, and it's a little bit of a journey, but if you would bear with me. I was thinking Always a lot ab- about the way that he makes his movies, which mm-hmm. actually does have a lot to do with respect for labor. You know, hmm. like he hires the best people he can find and lets them do their thing. That's the mm-hmm. reoccurring comment about him besides he's an asshole (laughs) (laughs) is that he trusts his dps he trusts his cinematographers he trusts his actors to like do the thing that they know how to do best and he's just interested in like making whatever vision he has sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad i i can't tell you in all the stuff i've read about how the story behind the story he usually doesn't start with a full script you know because like (laughs) he doesn't care (laughs) Michael Bay and and scripts just, you know, it's a fascinating relationship. Yeah. Or he's not fascinated by the scripts at all. Right. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So while Michael Bay is kind of a consummate capitalist Mm -hmm. uh, and celebrates capitalism on on every level and his movies can't help but do that, uh, I'll take some license as a a recovering postmodernist grad student (laughs) and read the text how I want. (laughs) Go for it. Which is that he really does value labor and and has respect for it. And there's something almost spiritual about mm. that to me. I have had in my head that there's a quote. I used to think it was St. Benedict. It turns out it's St. Joseph, which is uh, that work and craft can be a kind of prayer in and of itself. Oh, cool. if, you, if you devote yourself to your craft, like yeah. that is a, a form of prayer. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the tradition in the Christian church, especially the Catholic church, doesn't question that. That's something that gets quoted a lot, but it usually has to do with work as like a means of getting paid, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. when trad cats want to critique welfare, like you, you, you should work. God intends you to work. Right. <laughs> right. But I don't think that's in my sort of, my personal theology, mm-hmm. I, I do agree that craft can be a form of prayer, but it's it's when craft is fulfilling, when you are performing 
the tasks that you feel like you were put on earth to do, mm-hmm. you know, hmm. you're participating in the universe to the fullest extent you can. You and I have talked about the joys of craft yeah. every once in a while. Yeah. And the it appreciation be, of it. Yeah. It can be a transcendent experience, like oh, literally sure. yeah. to like w- when you're really, as the kids say, vibing, right? Yeah. Like, or in the zone as it were, you know, like, in the zone, yeah. it, it can feel, I mean, I, I don't know about Euphoric. you, but I, I, yes, yes. There are times and like five hours has gone by. Yep. I'll be writing and, and have, and really not want to leave. <laughs> Those moments are extremely rare for me as a writer. And when it happens, God, I love it. It's just, it, 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 it I leave it this way. I mean, this is all sincerity. It is better than any Mexican writing binge. It is an actual, like, you know, real writing binge. That's amazing. Uh, 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 mm, so I'm the addict. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> what I will say about it is that it is better, but the thing it, uh, we addicts and alcoholics don't like about it is you can't do it on command, right? Correct. Like you can't That's make it appear true. on command. No. And let me put it this way. As the non-addict, I accept the, the I accept the higher power that says, I'm not going to be able to do this all the time. But you know what? Every once in a while I can, and it's wonderful when that happens. Yeah, but you can kind of see where the theology kind of matches oh, yeah. up with that, where like yeah. when we are part of God's plan or the universe's right. plan, however you want to put it, like that is the work. That is like when mm-hmm. like we woke folks talk about the work, right? That's the yeah. work, capital T, capital W. Mm-hmm. And there is a tradition in the Catholic Church specifically that connects that with um, liberation theology. Oh, okay. Because yeah. it has to do with valuing the worker over the product. Right. And in fact, it was uh, John Paul II uh, (laughs) who wrote a book that's still controversial, um, Laborum Exertions. And it is pretty explicitly Marxist Mm -hmm. in talking about how, you know, what God intends is for labor to never be separate from capital. That labor is the creation of the people, like the the products of labor are owned by the laborers. And in in God's, you know- Man should not be alienated from his labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's, yeah. yeah. And that he does is sort of a defense of some kinds of private ownership. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But for the most part, he's like this, you're violating the the beauty of that craft when Hmm. you- when you divvy it up, especially among people who did not do the actual work. So I, we've traveled quite, this, this is pretty deep for Michael Bayot. I'm like yeah, legit well, impressed by this, you know, but uh, upon this rock might, you will build my church, <laughs> Dan. Well done. Well Thank done. you. It is discordant notes. In fact, discordant notes aren't happen in, this movie. Uh, it, what you just heard is Nick Cage playing discordant notes on his guitar. <laughs> to the White Album, yes. Uh, to the White Album. Those are the discordant notes in this movie. But we have some discordant notes for this movie. Uh, yes. Things that these, our, our patrons have asked, Dan. Mm-hmm. These are, uh, this is a question uh, from the our patrons uh, asked in the Discord that we have uh, are going to answer in the actual podcast. So Bull City Brian asks... Basically, why are bullets and bombs okay, but chemical weapons are not? And you know what? This is a great fucking question. And it's one that is actually- All ways to die are kind of miserable, right? Yeah. All the ways to die are kind of miserable. <laughs> what is it about chemical weapons that is you know makes them different? It is a great question. I do not have the answer to it, but I have read the person who does have the answer to it. Uh, so Richard Price, I believe back in 1995, wrote a book called uh, The Chemical Weapons Taboo. 
basically looking at the genealogy of why is it that that chemical weapons are viewed as distinct from you know what we would consider conventional munitions that are also equally painful the answer is is that it has something to do with the development of taboos but in particular the use of poison gas during world war 1 didn't necessarily horrify ordinary civilians all that much because at the time they didn't really know about their use in fact the thing about world war 1 was that civilian casualties were not all that serious in contrast to a lot of other forms of ordinance where there were often significant civilian casualties. And so as a result, they got used to it. So in that sense, what happened was, was that chemical weapons were wound up getting associated very closely with World War I, which had led to an appalling loss of life. And because of that, it was possible in 1925 to create something called the Geneva Protocol, which banned the use of chemical weapons. Because civilians didn't get inured to it, they were still initially horrified by it, and that apparently was one of the things that contributed to the taboo. A second thing that contributed to the taboo was an idea, for lack of a better of putting it, of civilization. The idea that the use of chemical weapons would be viewed as an uncivilized act. Um, was this racist at the time? Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely. Totally. And in fact, it should be noted that that the first country to violate the chemical weapons taboo after the tw- 1925 Geneva Protocol was signed was Italy when they gassed Ethiopians during their invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. This ties into something that, that we will talk about, which is how norms decay and how norms are reinforced, is that a norm isn't doesn't erode necessarily because someone violates it. In fact, those are times when, in fact, a norm can be strengthened based on how people react to it. So while chemical weapons have been used since uh, the 1925 Geneva Protocol, they weren't used in World War II. That helped to reify it even further. And the few occasions when they have been used since then um, have often led to uh, significant condemnation. So over time, chemical weapons have been socially constructed as being part of WMD as opposed to conventional weapons. As a result, they are treated differently. Dan, you mentioned WMDs. I did. Yes. So I have a story about this movie and WMDs. Oh, oh do tell, Kim. So in the run-up to the second Gulf War, right. when we're trying to yeah. come up with excuses mm-hmm. to invade, and it was really important to to whether or not Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons. Right? Well, WMD was the, the, the primary WMD. justification. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. yeah. So there was a British agent, Chilco something, uh, Chilcot. Chilcot. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? You, yes. So you know, I know the story. I know the name. I believe I know okay. the name, but go ahead. So everyone's super excited. Everyone who wants to invade is super excited yeah, because yeah. like, all right, chemical weapons, that's a WMD. Yep. We got permission. I mean, right. obviously didn't stop them <laughs> the, the, yeah. to, not have, to not have evidence. No, but it uh, gave them a talking point. Yeah. yeah. Someone pointed out. Mm-hmm. that this guy's description of how the munitions were both stored and planned to be used sounded like the, the rock. rock. Oh, no. Oh, dear. And because, this is where the science fiction element of this comes in. Yes. <laughs> because it turns out mm-hmm. there is no elegant string of pearls configuration. <laughs> That is not how the gas is used. It doesn't come in glass balls. Of course, it, it shouldn't come in glass yeah. balls. By the way, like that was right. actually that was that was that was legitimately or plastic funny. balls, whatever it is. Yes. Watching, yes, watching watching Goodspeed try to take these things out so we could take the chips out was actually like legitimately funny in terms of like there is no way this can happen without something being dropped. Like this is like the worst possible way to take to disarm these missiles. 
Yeah. So uh, this information revealed in a September 2002 claimed intensive anthrax production was underway in the country. Chilcott's findings reported that the questions were raised after, quote, it was pointed out that the glass containers were not typically used in chemical munitions and that a popular movie, The Rock, had <laughs> inaccurately depicted nerve agents as being carried in glass beads or spheres. So. Again, there is IR in this movie, Dan. There we go. And the movie has created further IR. So yeah. I, I do love that. Oh, what, you know what that is? That is what? a cannon full of glass being exploded over the chase scene because there wasn't enough debris. So, <laughs> ping, 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 more broken glass. Yep. All right. It's uh, the debris this field. Is the debris field uh, where we talk about the things we haven't already gotten a chance to talk about. Dan, what do you have? Uh, I have a couple little things. First, I think this is the only Michael Bay movie that has Hans Zimmer doing the music and Hans Zimmer should do the music for all of Michael Bay's films. Cause like, actually it's a pretty, like there's like a, a one particular, you know, action, like s- sounds that always come through and it actually really works. It's, it's just, you know, I, I think Bay is better when he has better people working around him. And so like Hans Zimmer is elevates this film in a way that I don't think the music in most of the other films really does. I noticed the soundtrack as well. I wasn't as big a fan of it, but mm. I did have the thought that we don't get this kind of soundtrack much anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. the kind of the, the hand Hans Zimmer style right. orchestral yeah. or yeah. orchestral music to back a car chase. Exactly. Yeah. yeah like yeah. We, we don't get that a lot. I want to point out the galaxy quest chompers in this movie where, Oh, right. In the system. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or yeah, the, uh, the, yeah. The why is the boiler working? As Michael Bay right. pointed out, <laughs> why does it? Why does it have chompers? Why? How? How would? Why? No. Nope. Sigourney nope. Weaver should have been somewhere saying this makes no sense. This is badly yeah. written. Yes, I agree. <laughs> totally fair. Anyway, totally. but it is cool that it impresses. I mean, it it establishes you know it establishes Sean Connery's <laughs> character and whatnot. Fine, but chompers. Okay. Um, okay, as per usual, and we, we always have to point this out with a Michael Bay film, there aren't a lot of lady characters in it. They're not necessarily, they're not done right. Um, but I will say this, Claire Forlani has a scene, she plays Mason's daughter. And I didn't really notice this before, but I was actually watching this scene this time. She's really good in it. I was at, like, you know, it, it's tough for a woman to do a good job in a Michael Bay film. And I see why she was actually the it girl, uh, one of the it girls of the sort of mid to late nineties. Cause she actually does bring some acting chops to that scene and gives it the necessary emotional weight to actually explain why Mason does what he does later. So, you know, not a big thing, but like, you know, you're an actress who actually managed to elevate Michael Bay material. Well done. You know, Dan, actually I don't have a much left, but if you have another piece of debris, I only have one because, and it, it, in some ways it's inspired by a point you've always made on it, which is that IP is a flat circle. I'm actually a little surprised that no one's made a prequel to this about John Mason's original mission in the United States. Like it would have been e- it's it would be interesting to have made that prequel is all I'm saying. There was talk of a sequel, which I think we can both be grateful that that was not. Made. Yeah, that's just as well. It's like a, can't no point. capture lightning in a bottle twice, no, no, no. I think. But that's it for the debris field for me. However, Same. yes. Imagine a bigger debris field, Dan. (laughs) Imagine a debris field with like asteroids. Ooh. 
the size of Texas. The the size of Texas. Planet killers. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about what we've learned in April. Because I I feel like I have learned some things about about movies, about Michael Bay, Mm -hmm. nay, about myself. (laughs) That's the best kind of epiphany, Anna. Um, Okay, what do you got? Lessons from, as I call it, you know, April. So mm-hmm. I do think there's a real value in, in letting people do their thing. Mm-hmm. That, that is something that I think I both learned from Michael Bay. And I, I do think it's part of his success, his continued mm-hmm. success. But also there is a limit to how much other people's talent can help you. <laughs> Fair enough. There yes. is a ceiling to that. And also that there is something that is still kind of ineffable to me. Uh, it is a question for the philosophers, which is this this way that sometimes craft just isn't enough. <laughs> like sometimes just being really, really good at something mm-hmm. is not art. Oh, yeah, that's that's entirely fair. You got something, yes. Dan? Let's take turns. This is a banal point. We've made it multiple times. Actors really matter. Um, you know, we talk, you know, this is about sci-fi. We can talk about the special effects. We can talk about the script. We can talk about the sets and so on and so forth. Michael Bay films rise or fall depending upon the quality, not just of the main actors, but the supporting actors. And I think part of this goes back to, again, we talked about this. There isn't a Michael Bay film without a, a overcomplicated plot. And I think part of how Bay, you know, Bay manages to pull that off when it does work is because he's got character actors that can do a lot with a little. And I think that's why The Rock works. I think it's why Armageddon works. I think it's why, frankly, The Island doesn't and the original, the first Transformer film doesn't really work terribly well. Maybe some of the later ones do because he does bring in more character actors. But character actors matter for Bay, which is interesting because you you think of him as like a purely visual director. But as it turns out, the acting is important. If I were to interview him, which again, I I really doubt is going to (laughs) happen. The thing I want to know about is how he selects his actors and like what the Mm -hmm. process is. And if it's just a gut feeling or if he knows that he has good taste in actors. Yeah. Or if it's just kind of a savant thing. Mm -hmm. I also learned something else about myself, uh, (laughs) which is I am a sucker for technical jargon. And (laughs) both as a part of a movie and also when I was reading these American cinematographer essays about Bay's work. Like, I just love reading about, like, all these, like, special lenses and the effects that they can make. And I don't think I'm fooled, like, mm-hmm. into thinking that's a substitute for actual good work. I just think right. it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love – one of the reasons I'm a journalist, and we, we've talked about this before, I think, but one of the reasons I'm a journalist is I love knowing things about a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I don't I – You're like a generalist. The, I'm a, I like being a generalist and yeah. being a journalist allows me to like really get into like something like that, you mm-hmm. know, like I just like to have this window into this completely different way of thinking about movies. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess my takeaway from Bay is that there's a ceiling and a floor to him and the ceiling, you know, is moderately high, but not too high. I mean, like even Michael Bay's best work is still, as you point out, like there's not serious themes going on here. The actors elevate this, but there's also a, a pretty decently high floor that even his like schlock is beautiful to look at, you know, craft. like, yeah, the, the craft matters. And so, you know, weirdly, I guess the way to put it is that Michael Bay is his own version of the MCU. You know, we talk about this in terms of the MCU that like, you know, they, they have a very sort of formulaic way of doing things. There are very few bad films. There aren't necessarily any great films. I think that's true of Michael Bay. Like Bay's world is like his own little thing. And 
Um, oh, which does remind me, this should have belonged in the debris field, but I, I have to say it here. I don't know if you noticed this. The same actor plays the president in this film as in Armageddon. So as far as I'm concerned, these same two universe, things, yeah. same universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe it. I believe yeah. it. One of the things that, that also, I guess, I, this is really the debris field. We're exiting the asteroid field, <laughs> still getting pet <laughs> pelted. Yeah. The idea that no one would have figured out something bad is happening. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is where, I mean, like this movie couldn't have been made nowadays. Like, you know, remember this is a movie where there's no cell phones, no social media, right. none of that. The web barely has started to exist. I kind of got the, like, I, I was willing to, I was willing to, I, at the time, I don't remember thinking you're right. Like at some point, like Womack says, call the families, tell them something, you know, like this can't a get out. overshot apparently like an Oakland Raiders game. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. But that, but that happens at the very end. So like, you know, that, that's, that's on the later side. Yeah, I, I, I just think I, I, anyway, yes, it is perhaps an artifact of its time. Yeah. All right. So I'm glad we did April. I'm also glad we're not going to ever do it again. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't feel the need to do any more Transformers films, I think would be the way to put it. Yeah. 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 I, I also like it when we set a challenge for ourselves to like, look at, at something just because we like the pun of a month. <laughs> Yes. Uh, we are planning on doing Butler Vimber again for Octavia Butler. Right. Although that might conflict with Andor. That kind of depends on when Andor, oh, the second season yeah, of Andor yeah, yeah. is released. So we'll have to figure that one out. Because but. as a reminder, uh, we are going to become a Andor recap podcast for yep. a time. Yep. So because we, That is how much we liked it. That Yep. And we haven't said that about anything since The Expanse. So, you know, we're, we're, we're serious. Yeah. That's how you know. So please uh, become a patron if you're not a patron already. If you are a patron, please tell your friends and neighbors about the show and rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. That is how other people find out about us. And don't you want to spread the good word? Don't you know what? Not just friends evangelize. and neighbors. Think about colleagues. You're all going to have, you know, for those of you who are going back into work now, you know, like this is a topic of conversation you can have with them. It'll, it'll generate lots of the, ju the creative juices will be flowing. I mean, it that's won't right. be like Mexican writing binge kind of thing, but like, you know, Mexican water cooler type stuff. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I like that. that is, that's an interesting image, Dan. And I, I think we're going to end on that. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.